Welcome back to Casual Pour, the show where we sit down, have a drink, and discuss the hottest headlines in business, media, and tech. I'm Sabatesh. I'm Robert Arari. And Robert and I went out for dinner last night, got super drunk, and had a lot of sushi. Wee. It was great. It was. It was. It was. I think it was our first time going out since coronavirus happened. Yeah. Yeah. No. It, it was, was like our first real in-person dinner thing. Because we were like, we, we were social distancing largely. Everyone who's listening, but you know, it was our first time. We just had to throw that one. Just throw that in there. We're 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 good. Of course, we're good. We listened to the rules. You know, it was a good time. We listened to the rules. Saw got drunk and emailed Martha Stewart's team asking if we can get Snoop Dogg on the show. So uh, I mean, so that was supposed we'll, to be we will like keep you posted on that on, on how that uh, that was supposed to be like a, a surprise. We were out with a couple of friends, and they mentioned something about how Martha and Snoop and I know they're friends, but like by Martha and Snoop were were doing something together. Maybe it was a show, or they were starting a business together. I don't know exactly what it was. And I just looked at Robert and I go, "We should get Martha to bring Snoop on the show." and do an exclusive interview with Martha and Snoop. So I took out my phone and I just sent them an email and said, you know, I have a great idea. What if we got Snoop and Martha on the show together? I woke up, I woke up this morning and I saw an email that was from Sal to Martha Stewart's team. Be like, I got a great idea. Let's get Snoop Dogg on the show. Me, you, Snoop Dogg and Robert, wouldn't it be wild? <laughs> and you know what? You know what? When that happens, when we get that, it's going to be the the interview of the century, okay? The interview of the century. Howard Stern can't even get Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart in the same room together. That is so gold. Anyway, what do we got this week? This week, we're sitting down with Ian Borthwick. Ian is the head of influencer marketing channels for SeatGeek, but you probably know him better by his Twitter handle, Ian from SeatGeek, and as the guy who keeps just giving David Dobrik cars. Can't stop giving away those It's amazing. Cars. It's amazing. I mean, I, I feel bad because... I think, you know, we, we mentioned it in the interview, but I feel bad because people probably just walk over him and ask him for cars all the time. But, you know, listen, it's part of the life. And you know what? He is the, probably, I would say this now, the most famous name in influencer marketing today. So we got the him on the show. influencer of all influencers. Yeah. We're going to talk to him about, obviously, we're going to talk to him about David Dobrik. We're going to talk about the influencer creator world in general. I hate the word influencer. So let's say creator. We're going to talk about the creator world in general and how, how much money is being made. And just where this industry is going, he's got the information. He's so logged into it, and he had some amazing things to say. What else we got? What are we talking about first? What's the topic of the week? Yep. Super, super thankful for Ian for coming in. But first, we are going to be talking about Epic Games versus Apple. Epic Games is one of many companies now to participate in the all-out war against Apple's App Store payment policies. For those of you who don't know, Apple is trying, obviously, all companies are trying to grow their business, but Apple's trying to grow their business. They realized it became really hard to grow their business in hardware, which is where all their money was coming from before. Um, a big focus for the company now is they've got a billion devices out. How can we monetize those devices? It's through services, through things like Apple Music, through Apple TV, Apple TV Plus. Um, but a big, big, big revenue driver in their services business is the App Store. Apple takes 30% of every single thing um, that goes through their App Store. That means every single subscription, in-app purchases, time you pay for an app to download it, every single in-app purchase that you've ever made, Apple's demanded and collected 30% of that. And so their excuse is really, you know, we keep the, we keep the App Store closed, we monitor everything, um, and that's just, you know, those are the rules that, that we set. It's our App Store. And... That's how we do it. Um, unfortunately, 
companies have to abide by that. And Epic Games tried to, or actually did, circumvent Apple's payment system and tried to go straight to Epic Games' website specifically so they could collect that 30% instead of Apple. Right. And by the way, uh, Epic Games is not the only company to have done this. Spotify's actually done this in the past, and they're actually in the middle of a suit with Apple about this, saying that because Apple collects 30% on every single subscription, they can no longer compete with Apple Music on price. And so because of that, it's difficult for a company like Spotify to continue to exist if Apple's going to collect 30% of their subscription fee and compete with them at the same time. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough on the smaller guys. And of course, we're watching all the antitrust, antitrust possible antitrust cases happening in real time right now. Um, you saw Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Cook, and uh, Sundar Pakai talking to Congress a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, Robert, what are your thoughts on this? I know, I, I know you're angry about it, so I'm just going to let you get it out. I'm actually not necessarily angry. Okay. I'm actually personally a little bit conflicted. You know, on one hand- Now we're Apple, talking. Okay. If you're new to this show, Robert usually is like, okay, I got this one topic. This is what we're talking about. I'm going after him full force. I'm pissed. This is, this is new. Okay, go ahead. I'm very excited. No, but honestly, honestly, I'm conflicted because like on one hand, Apple is a private company and they have a right to monetize their products and services however they want to. The App Store in this case is also massively impactful for the country. It's not only changed the iPhone, but it's literally changed the American economy. Apple in 2019 released their 2016 numbers for what they estimate the App Store has created in terms of jobs. 1.5 million people are employed by companies that rely on the App Store. Billions of dollars of value move through the App Store year over year. And by the way, we wouldn't have jobs like being an Uber driver or being a Postmates delivery person without the App Store to host these things. So they've literally created new types of jobs and have materially impacted the American economy. But on the other hand, they're in this position where because of their power, they're able to engage in anti-competitive behavior. So especially like when they're entering into new markets, like Spotify is a great example of that. Because Apple collects this 30% fee, right? Spotify can't compete on price with Apple Music. That of course gives Apple a competitive advantage now where you have to decide as Spotify, do I make my app accessible on the app store or do I lose out on 30% of my profits? And like that's, a, that's an impossible distinction that you have to make. So the way I see this is they kind of have this, this split fiduciary responsibility. So like in part, they're Apple. They have a responsibility to their shareholders, to their employees. Of course. To maximize value, to enter into new markets, and to do everything they can to take down competitors. But on the other hand, they now run this marketplace that has millions of other jobs and other companies that rely on them maintaining this fair and level marketplace. And so they kind of have this split set of interests or set of parties that they're responsible to. So it's, it's honestly, it's, it's, a tough, it's, a, it's, it's a tough place to be, and there's no one answer to it. Um, you know, it, it's mean, a, it, to me, it's like a question of what's fair. Like, okay, you don't like, you know, as a developer, you don't like 30%. Do you want them to not take anything? Apple's definitely taking advantage. Um, but they, I mean, in all honesty, they earned it. They sold a billion devices. They built a huge company off of the iPhone. They were one of the first to create this, this, this open app store on mobile. I mean, 
you could argue they earned it. And by the way, Google's in this fight too. Yeah, no one talks about it. No one talks about it. Google's also, by the way, in the exact same fight. They have the exact same payment as Apple. It's ridiculous. You know, I, um, first of all, I, 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 comm- I, but I do commend, and I want to go back, I do commend Epic Games um, for trying. We did email Tim Sweeney at Epic Games. He responded and said he was super busy, but thanked us for the offer to come on the show, which is really nice of him and much appreciated. Much appreciated. Um, I give him a lot of credit for going after um, the $2 trillion behemoth that is Apple. Um, mm-hmm. I think that um, $18 billion, which is the valuation that's currently on Epic Games, I think that's like you know pennies for Apple. Apple's going to squash Epic Games. Epic, uh, if you, let, Let's play it out, okay? Epic Games, mm-hmm. assume Epic Games makes a significant portion of their revenue off of the App Store, a significant portion. Yep. A lot off of not even just Apple's App Store, like we said, Google's App Store. Um, if Apple lost Fortnite on the App Store, I think you wouldn't even see it on their quarterly report. So, you know, Fortnite does have help. Um, according to the Wall Street Journal, they have help from, from companies like Sony to help with their war chest a little bit. But I don't think, I don't think it's going to make um, the biggest difference. And in all, in all fairness, in all fairness, they're suing, Epic Games is suing Apple in federal court. Okay. When you're a developer, you sign a contract. You sign those terms and conditions. That's locked in. Now you're going to go to a court and say- kind of cut and dry. Right. Now you're going to go to a court and say it's not fair. Someone has to change the law. It's not going to be a a low-level federal court. You're either going to go to the Supreme Court or Congress is going to have to do something. Moving into kind of government solutions on this, I want to move away from just the 30% fee and talk about, in general, when- large companies who run marketplaces engage in anti-competitive behavior. So look at, you know, Apple's not the only one doing this, right? Apple has, is now competing head-on with Spotify using Apple Music, is now competing head-on with Netflix using Apple TV Plus and a ton of other streaming. So, I mean, and a ton of other cloud services that they're offering. Apple's probably the least companies. taking advantage compared right. to other companies. Look at, look at, look at, look at, look at Amazon. Amazon is literally releasing competitive products to their own users on their own marketplace. Yeah. And Google. Uh, and Google, right? There's no big tech company. I mean, maybe other than eBay. There's no big tech company that runs a marketplace that isn't also competing on that same marketplace. And so the question is, is it okay for these companies to create products that compete with their own users on their own marketplaces? You know, we've never been, we've had antitrust. Um, in the past, companies have been broken up by the government. It's happened before. And according to Kara Swisher, you know, she said, like, it, it's going to happen again. Like she said on the show, it's going to happen again to these, to these guys. The crazy thing is we've never been, and we've spoken about this on the show before, you and me, but it, we've never been in this area where these companies control, like they're their own country, basically. They control an entire mm-hmm. economy under their roof. That's never been dealt with before. Um, and so I think these companies, I don't know if they need to be broken up, but I- By do, the way, to put that into yeah. context, there's literally companies that exist to help you with your Google AdWords campaigns. Yeah, of course. Or companies that exist that pay salaries to their employees who then go home and put that money in their kid's college fund mm-hmm. off of revenues that come from helping an Amazon seller rank better on Amazon. I don't These guys aren't just selling products on Amazon. There's yes. entire economies that exist. Yes. And I don't just because Amazon exists. I, I, I don't think that they need to be broken up as much as they as as much as there needs to be rules in place 
to mm-hmm. give uh, smaller businesses or the consumer or you know someone trying to start up on your platform the best chance possible. It's fine. Yeah. Amazon can be huge and they can be a you know, trillion dollar company and they're amazing at logistics and they do, uh, they do a tons of great things and they help a lot of small businesses. And if they put small business first and don't take advantage, or in Google's case, they don't take advantage or Facebook doesn't take advantage, but people can use these marketplaces to push themselves forward and build businesses out of them. I think that's amazing. Yep. It's incredible. And, so, and, and all these companies deserve to be multi-billion dollar companies for it. I agree with that. One thing that I think needs to happen is I think there needs to be some kind of, and I've heard this from a bunch of people, I'm not the only person saying this, there needs to be an iron curtain between these big tech companies and the marketplaces that they run. Amazon, if they ever decided to sell coffee mugs, can sell more fucking coffee mugs than anybody, any one seller on Amazon could sell. Why? Because they know exactly which SKUs sell the best. They know exactly which price point to sell at. They know exactly what kind of users to market to, what kind of demographics to market to, what kind of keywords perform best on their marketplace because they run the marketplace. So they have an infinite amount of data into what people on this marketplace are going to gravitate to. It's impossible for a new entry to, comp- new entry to compete on that. I agree. And Amazon's not the only one doing that. Google, Apple, they create apps using data that they're collecting from their marketplaces. And so there needs to be some kind of wall between the data that you collect on marketplaces and the product teams inside of these companies. Right. If you're Apple, if you're Google, and you want to release a competitive product, do it. Absolutely do it. But you should not be allowed to use the data that you are collecting from companies on your marketplace to be able to compete with them. Agreed. I think that's very well said. And I think all in all, um, I think all in all, Apple is taking the least advantage out of all the other companies that we just spoke about, Amazon, Facebook, Google. Um, yeah, and they really are. They, they really are. And, and yes, I, and I agree. And I'm also on Epic Games side. It's tough to grow a business when there's someone taking 30% of everything. Um, and I think my last point is, truth is, time will tell. I mean, Kara made me feel great last week when she said that it's inevitable that these companies will be regulated and it's going to happen, even though every time you mm-hmm. watch these congressional hearings, it's like hilarious. But she seemed really confident that it was going to happen. And, um, and so that's great. Time will tell. Well, hopefully time comes sooner rather than later. But anyways, let's move on to Ian Sir, We always do this. We always fuck up when, the, the, when we place the sponsors. It's a mid-roll ad for a reason. You're yeah. right. This episode of Casual Poor is brought to you. No, we have by, to go back. You have to say now we're gonna now we're gonna go to our sponsor. I gotta go back. I gotta say so like now we're now gonna, a word. So ne- so so okay. now let's do a quick plug. You know, yeah. Okay, and now so now so now let's do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Oh, you do it. I'll do it. All right. I think it's time uh, to do a quick plug for our favorite sponsor of this episode. Our friends at Future Fit. Robert, tell the people more about Future Fit. I could talk about Future Fit for hours. I use Future Fit every single day. As many of you know, I have a workout schedule that has been completely built for me. Someone who hated working out for years. It was the fucking bane of my existence. The most athleticism I've had in my career was being on the sixth grade basketball team where I one-handed threw it over the backboard and got a standing ovation from the other team in my only three minutes that I played that entire season. So I'm not an athletic guy. and Even I am in love with Future Fit. 
It connects you with a personal trainer who creates a custom workout regimen for you. And then every single day gives you brand new tailored to you workouts. It's an amazing app. It keeps it's you on regimen. App. It's the shit. Keeps you working out. Keeps you happy. It keeps you fit, especially during quarantine. I heard they're reopening gyms in New York. I don't know how I feel about that. If you think I'm getting on a treadmill or like picking up a weight that some <laughs> guy just picked up, it's not happening. I don't know. I don't know what the story is on that. All I know is Future Fit is a great way to stay fit um, while while you're you know stuck in the house. So visit future.fit slash casual. You get seventy five dollars off your very first month. That's future.fit slash casual, $75 off your first month. That's our sponsorship. And now we're going to cut straight to the main event, our interview with Ian from SeatGeek, Ian Borthwick, the head of influencer marketing channels at SeatGeek. Yep. Okay, we are back with our very, very special guest this week. Um, the Senior Director of Influencer Channels at SeatGeek, but that's not the part you probably know him from. This is Ian from SeatGeek. You know him because he just gives away so many cars on David Dobrik's vlogs. Um, Ian, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Happy to be here. What a great, great intro. Listen, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm making the joke and you probably get it all the time. So I'm, I'm trying not to do it, but like, I, I, I'm asking people, I'm like, Hey, I'm having Ian on the show. Should I ask him for a car? Do you, and I'm, you probably get that all the time. And it's very annoying that people ask you, you know, can I get a car too? Listen, I'll take whatever I can get. Anyone who knows <laughs> me knows that I don't, I don't hate the attention. Um, I can't give you a car unless you're doing David Dobrik numbers, but that makes uh, sense. If you're hitting 10 million a video on, on YouTube, maybe we have that conversation. Okay. No, Can you dude. start us off with a Vespa? <laughs> we'll see how this episode goes. <laughs> I want to jump in. I want to start with you. I want to just understand how you ended up here at SeatGeek, how you ended up in this influencer marketing world. Was that, was influencer marketing always your thing? Was this, did you understand this creator world or did you just kind of fall into it? Yeah, I definitely don't have like a, I'd say I had that moment, I'd say in college that maybe you guys had where you were sitting in a class. For me, it was political science. It was senior year. And I was like, what the hell am I doing in this class? I don't actually care about politics. I don't want to do this as my next job. Um, and so I remember I kind of had a panic attack that night and said, <laughs> All I look at is ESPN all day. That's all I want to do. That's all I care about. So how am I going to get into sports? Which is, I think, what everyone tells themselves. A lot of guys do it in college. I did it. Um, and the long story short is I, I got an internship at this company called Wasserman, which is one of the larger sports agencies. Um, I basically kind of tricking this, this senior vice president that I was a family friend or I somehow knew his family. What? It was kind of odd. <laughs> like I had a second cousin. It was a whole convoluted way, but it was all just trying to get me in the door. Because if anyone knows sports, there's no direct journey to sports. You kind of just have to fake it until you make it. Um, I did. I worked at Wasserman for, for three years, um, representing you know athletes, working on properties. Like if you're if you're from San Francisco, you might know the race Beta Breakers. A lot of naked people run this race, but also 60,000 people do it. 
I left SeatGeek after doing is that. that a, is that a requirement of the race or is that just like a decision people started making? So it's the <laughs> oldest. We, we, we would pitch it when we bought it as like the oldest fun run. So it was like, I don't know, Tough Mudder or Color Run before those things even happened. And so like the, that was the thesis for why Wasserman bought it. But then when we got it, we were like, oh, it's just like a ton of naked people. And the reason... <laughs> I mean, and it's like naked, naked. It's not kind of naked. It's a lot of dudes naked. It's just, it's a weird scene. And it's, it's so, so San Francisco. Wow. And so, um, I was the head of marketing for that, that foot race, um, which was a crazy experience. Um, I think I was like 26 at the time. And so we, we grew that race to about 50,000 paid participants, which was a, wow. a big deal for us. Um, but I think after then, after that moment, I really wanted to, it was right when, I don't know if you guys remember, I'm sure you do, when DraftKings and FanDuel was just spending all the money. Yeah. And I wanted to get into something that cross sports and a tech company. I just, I just really got into sports and tech and SeatGeek was, had his job opening. I applied, got it. Um, and they didn't hire me to do influencer marketing. They hired me to do college sports sponsorships, which I never did because at the time we were having a very successful uh, experience on podcasts. So like you heard Bill Simmons on podcast. We were the first podcast sponsor hmm. of Bill Simmons. But they were doing that before you got there. Before they got, before I got okay. there. So I would love to take credit for all the great work we did in podcasts, but I can't. Um, SeatGeek, I think early on, recognized that podcasts and these new... We didn't know it then, but these creators were going to be big. What we found, though, was podcast was exploding for us. And we just kept on asking ourselves, what's the next podcast? And for me, I looked on YouTube and I saw these NBA 2K gamers who are clocking 200,000 views of video. And if we had a podcast that was do, doing 200,000 listens, that was a major podcast in our portfolio. Like that's a, a major property. Did they think you were crazy? They thought I was crazy. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the sense, it was just like, these were, a lot of them were kids. Like these, I've grown up with these guys now, but there's these guys, Christopher London and, and Jezra the Laser and these kids who, just played NBA 2K all day. And so, and this was back in 2016. So there wasn't agents, there wasn't managers. It was truly the Wild West. So I was in the DMs and I was right. Why don't you, why don't we do, why don't we give you tickets to a game? And if you take a step back, I, I, I wish, if you take a step back, that's the best advertising for Seeky and it's great content for influencers. So I think what, but a lot of brands, when they do influencer marketing, they don't quite get that the influencer also needs to produce content for its channel. And your cha you're constantly under pressure to look interesting, to have things to bring your audience. And what SeatGeek had was a real unfair weapon in the influencer space where we could say, why don't you sit row three at the Clippers game? And it worked well with 2K, right? That was the, that was the beauty. Right. And it was like, they could go to the game, they could suddenly take their audience, really showcase that live event experience, 
They're sitting row four at the Clippers game, and it's this amazing moment for them. Mm. And then it finishes with SeatGeek help make this happen. Use my promo code for $20 off your first order. And right. it's just a natural, it's just such a natural plug. And so that first year we did probably like 50, 50 integrations. And then and then fast forward today, we do about 150 to 200 videos a month. Um, we have a four-person internal team that really only focuses on influencer marketing. And it's really become SeatGeek's unfair advantage in the ticketing space. That's interesting. You guys are taking advantage of what you have, which is the the you know that you can offer tickets to games, um, and really working with worked with the people that complemented that really well. And so you're saying that took you to the really the next level. Yeah, I think because and I tell us to any brand trying to get started is try to find that niche group of people that care about your product more than anyone else. Right. Because one. The people who are watching NBA 2K videos or watching, you know, guys go basketball games are probably basketball fans. You're hitting your target demo 100%, but you're also able to negotiate with tickets or product and you're not paying that flat media fee. So if mm-hmm. I went to those same influencers and said, I need you to promote Slim Jims, they'd say, Pay me $5,000. Pay me $10,000. Send me 2,000 pounds of Slim Jims. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think you got to start. A lot of brands focus too, their aperture too wide, and they don't focus on those smaller creators who are really going to care about their product. So I do want to talk more about that and pricing and how this whole game works because it is new. It is new. It's, it's old, but it's just beginning, meaning it's only like what, you know three, four years old. But I do want to, I do want to talk about David a little bit. Um, and I know you probably you told the story. I'm a huge fan. I saw Such him, a fucking I saw fan. him at he catch. Loves David Dobrik. I saw him at catch one night with the whole, with, you know, the whole squad. And I, yeah. I wanted to go say hi. And then I just, I just didn't do it. So I still regret that till this day. But um, I want to know how that got started. And I want to know if you knew how successful that was going to be the second question no i definitely (laughs) didn't know i don't think david knew how successful he'd be and i think that's why david is so successful which is kind of a if you understand what i'm saying you you watch his Mm -hmm. content but so david we had been trying to work for david for probably two years at the time and david would never return our 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 emails our DMs. He just ignored us. Um, and we had a moment in the 2016 World Series where the Cubs were in it and he wanted to fly home and surprise his best friend with tickets to the game. And so hmm. this was our moment. Super geeked up about it. I remember being like, this is our moment. And I wrote, and this is a funny story now, I wrote this like very onerous creative brief to David. I had like, I wanted David to show the app. I wanted him to like scroll through it. I wanted it to make it, I wanted to make sure I maximized every second of those 30 seconds I had for David. Cause at the time, I think the tickets were probably, I I don't remember what they were, but it was thousands and thousands of dollars worth of tickets and the most I'd ever bought anyone. Did you have a tough time getting that approved? Um, yes. 
but I wasn't, I, I knew I was going to win that. The problem uh, was David wouldn't do my script. David saw the script and he was like, nope. And his agent, Jack, called me and immediately transferred David in. And David's like, I'm not going to read that. And so your first thought is what? I, I'm like, I'm fucked. <laughs> I'm like, it's, it's like that sense of panic where you know, like, you know, when you can hear it in someone's voice where they're just not going to do it. Yeah. But I also yeah. know that I, I need to do this or I'm going to regret it for a while. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so David's pitch and never get on the phone with David. Um, he's very, <laughs> very persuasive. And he said, I'm going to make you a character in the videos. Like, trust me, let me make this about me giving my friends tickets, not about the product. I'll weave the product in a little bit, but the audience doesn't really care about how great your deal score is or how beautiful your view from seat is. They care because you're supporting me and they're going to support you because you support me. And so I remember agreeing but almost like regretting it kind of like you're just kind of like feel like uh oh what did i get myself into but you agreed i agreed that's such like an interesting self ascent of self sense of self on his part right i mean like just to understand like this is not this is not going to be successful with my audience if this is not 100 feel and look authentic i don't use my phone by pointing it at a screen and scrolling with my right. index finger right right i mean his pitch was let me make it about, I called you guys and I wanted to make this happen. And you guys understood where I was coming from. You understood the emotion. You understood why it was going to be a big deal and you wanted to help make it happen, which I did. But I just wanted to make sure that we had all the product points. And, and right. I think a lot of that's a, pr- a problem for a lot of people who do influencer marketing is mm-hmm. you get these ad reads that are basically just like a banner ad. It just says, I'm saying the script, I'm doing these four things because I have to do it. Now back to the content. And this wasn't that. And it and it worked because of that. And so since then, with David, it's kind of been off to the races. We've done, I think, 30 videos together. Um, wow. Probably close closing in on probably 300,000 views, uh, 300 million views on wow. his videos. Wow. I mean, but you you know... You're, you're not a creator yourself, but you know when you see someone good. Yeah. And so what makes David that I, – I, I, I always try to understand why David hit the level he hit. What, what is it? And I think a lot of people are trying to figure out why he's that, you know, I guess, rare creator that's able to, you know, transcend social channels and, and take his followers across, you know, from YouTube to TikTok to Instagram and how he's able to get – I don't know, 10 million views a video when, you know, regular television can't even get close to that. What is his thing? Oh, and he doesn't even have a production company behind him. It's just, it's literally just him. Tell me what else you like about David Dobrik, Saw. So. Tell me, tell me something else you like about David Dobrik. Yeah. Man. yeah. I've never met someone who is just so authentic about their content and this is what fits, this is what doesn't and never stops. I mean, if you hang out with him, all day is just him filming videos and it's never enough. You ask him like he's cutting the video and it's, he, he says it's going to come out in 30 minutes and he still thinks he only has like 60% of the vlog. Huh. Casey Neistat's a lot like that. Um, we're just, if he's going to work with you, he's going to work with you only on his own terms because 
money, he knows money's going to come, but he knows the minute he starts sacrificing his content, you're just in this, in a, in a, in a slippery slope where you're, you're going to a place you don't want to go. So like for Casey, Casey, I try to work with Casey for probably like three or four years. And he only talked to me when he wanted to go to the Super Bowl for the first time. And so you just have to like, you know, yeah. find these moments. So I want to build off this because I know self, I leave him to his own devices. This is going to become a podcast about David Dobrik. <laughs> I want to talk about what you were just mentioning with this ad with David Dobrik and how your ad was what feels and reads and looks more like what is kind of your typical 30 second Instagram ad that you see when you're, you know, scrolling through your phone. I think I've seen almost that exact ad that you're describing for like the game time app, right? For example. And David said, no, this is not consistent with my audience. That's super important because I, I mean, you hear the difference when you listen to a podcast ad versus when you watch a TV ad. They're very personality driven. There's all these other elements to them. What is really the key differences between producing content with influencers who work directly with and speak directly to their audience versus producing an ad or producing script for an ad within the boardroom, right? Of SeatGeek or within any company. So this guy on my team, Greg, came up with this term that I'm going to steal, and he, call, he called it relational advertising. And I think the way I see it is, so these influencers, what's different about influencers is they came up building their own community. So they know their community directly. They're not like TV stars who happen to have a big social media following. David has been building that audience for years and years and years. And so they have this incredible direct connection with their audience that nobody else has. And that's what you're paying for in influencer marketing. You're not paying for like David's likeness and you're not sure you're paying for the views, but what you're really paying for is that direct connection, that ability where he is going to contextualize your ad and make it his own mm. for his audience. And I think that's what the difference is. Whereas a, you see a TV ad and it's, 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 you know, a, it's a 30 second spot that has nothing to do with the content. Whereas like influencer would be like, if you were mm -hmm. watching Seinfeld, I say this sometimes and Jerry just turned to the camera and was like, we're about to prank Kramer. It's going to be absolutely yeah. insane. I call it like, you know, it, it's, it just, it's right. part of the culture. It's part of the zeitgeist. And I think that's, that's the difference here. Does that ever go away? authenticity is really what's selling right now. That's what people are looking for. But if everyone's doing authentic ads, does it really feel authentic anymore? It's very meta. Mm. So the way, yes, but you got to push the limits. So like influencer marketing is just, everything's going to get increasingly commoditized. So I'd say like the podcast space, if you look at where Spotify is trying to take it, they're going to take it to a point where you guys do this podcast and they embed ads into your podcast. And each listener is going to hear a different ad based on who they are, based on what Spotify knows of them. And you're just going to get a check. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't love that world for, for podcasting candidly. I think it's going to devalue it for advertisers. For influencers, there still is not yet a, a over-the-top option of directly inserted ads. The closest to it would be like a YouTube pre-roll, which is kind of there. And I think for us, 
you have to try to find ways to deepen your connection. So for David, no other brand is going to, I think, go to the level that we're going to go in terms of like, what does cars have to do with a ticketing app? Right. Doesn't make sense. But we also do the same thing. We, we work with these guys too hype. The same creators I actually first work with. We just built a basketball court in their backyard. <laughs> it's CT okay. Court. So Step Up has their court in, um, you know, as that 76ers court. Right. We got a court with a backyard of YouTubers and it gets <laughs> millions of video, billions of wow. views a month. And I think like it's the onus is always on, on the brand to really figure out what's next and how to be authentic. That backyard with the SeatGeek logo is probably reaching the same amount of people as the StubHub Stadium is reaching in terms of impressions. Uh, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, I used to do this crazy thing where we would, at Wasserman, we'd get a computer screen, you'd watch a game, and then you'd make like little brackets on your screen, like a grid, and you'd do a stopwatch, and you clock, clock how long that little logo huh. in the court side signage was there. <laughs> and then you'd discount it, because you're like, well, only 20% of people saw it. So you'd look, look like a 30-second ad rate, and you'd multiply right. it by that thing. And it's this wow. crazy roundabout way. Whereas if you, if you, every time these guys play in our court, it's on Seeky court. It has the blue. Yep. We got everyone's coming through and it's just, it's, we have, we actually had people like building the court in like Minecraft and NBA 2K where like their fans want it to be Seeky court too. Oh, that's so cool. Oh my God. I think it's, I think to your point, it's going to get harder and harder. Like the, the tricks that we use, the things that we did, three years ago aren't going to work today, but the best brands have to push the limits on like what you can do. Where do the numbers catch up to linear television? Because you're still spending, I mean, millions of dollars on a television ad when if you did a, you know, you did a video with a YouTube influencer, it would cost way, way less. And so my first question is, is TV dead? And then my second question is, yeah, like when does when do the numbers catch up to TV or does it never happen because there's so many creators that cost is being kind of spread out around that area? Because this is where media is going, right? Yeah, it's where it's going, but where it's not there yet. So for Seeky, right. we, need, we need the 40-year-olds, we need the 30-year-olds, we need the people who have that bat wallet and spend a lot of money on tickets. And so- yep. Mm -hmm. I'm getting the Gen Zers. I'm getting the people who are going to like rap concerts I've never heard of. We have that demo unlocked, but in order to attack that older, more affluent demo, TV is still the most scalable option for us to go. So I think like it changes, but for right now, if you're a company that needs to appeal to all demographics, TV has to be part of your arsenal just because it's really hard to reach, you know, 40 year olds, 30 year olds in the same way that you can reach, you're not reaching them in podcasts and, and, and yep. YouTube. So building on that, actually talking about podcasts, talking about just in general, influencer marketing from someone who's paying for it, right? As a person who's paying for it, what do conversion rates typically look like? How do you measure what is a successful influencer ad campaign? Yeah. So what I think what, what came out of podcasts and definitely in, in, in influencer is and YouTube is 
direct response advertising. So SeatGeek, every time you hear David say something promoting SeatGeek, he promotes his code David. And so every day I wake up and I can look at a dashboard, I can see how many people bought tickets using code David. And I can also see it across our hundred other influencers. And so that level of attribution is kind of what you need to be really aggressive in the space. And the mistake a lot of people make is they house influencer marketing, sometimes even podcast in PR communications. And you need to have that performance lens to actually understand what it works. But to to your actual question after my digression is <laughs> in terms of actually how to know in conversions, it converts for us on a much higher impression basis. But that's the bet. The bet coming back to what I said earlier. Is, what, 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 what exactly does that mean? So it converts to you at a much higher impression. What, what, what does that mean? If you were to put all the, if let's say you have a TV impression, you have a YouTube impression, you have a podcast impression and you have like, social you have like i don't know an instagram ad mm -hmm. you're going to pay probably five to ten x the cost of that facebook ad to do an influencer promo because that conversion rate ought to be way higher it ought to be higher because it's coming out of david dobrik's mouth sure because he has that connection to you mm -hmm. and for us that bears out influencer marketing is one of our top channels and i think if you take the second thing to look at is if, let's say you take a top-down look at where marketing is right now. If you're SeatGeek and you're spending ads on Google AdWords, you're competing against StubHub, Vivid Seats, Ticketmaster. Everyone's bidding for the same clicks. You're in this arms race that's really tough to win, yeah. especially as a scrappy brand. But you know where they're not going to go? They're not going to go to David Dobrik's DMs or an NBA to build a court in NBA to get wow. players backyard. And so I think that's, that's where this is going, especially if you're a young challenger brand is you can get the conversion that you're getting on Google elsewhere. You just have to be a lot scrappier about it. Wow. I mean, like I, you know, I talk to companies all the time and influencer marketing agencies and, and really they, a lot of them go by impressions. Right. And, I know you're not a fan of that, but they'll quote, there is, there's no price here. Like they'll quote me. They'll go, Oh, we're $3 CPM. No, we're, we're $10 cost per mile. We're 20. What is the right? What is the right number in your opinion? Cause there is no right number. And this is just a quick question. There is no right number. I would suggest anybody start at $20 CPM is not it's probably the influencer is going to think it's low because of course they are. And you're going to maybe think it might be too high, but right. the whole goal of what you're trying to get is move off of buying off impressions. So like the first deal you have to buy off impressions right? because you don't have anything else to go on. But after that, you should never care about impressions because your goal should be, I know this is how many conversions this is how many purchasers David drove. That's how you get to scale as you, you work with these influencers and have, let's say, like a six video deal or a 10 video deal every other month or every month. That's how you're able to really build up a lot of the cadence you need to actually get to scale. So you don't really give a shit about how many people David Dobrik shows this to. You care about how many people love David Dobrik enough to say, thank you, David, for the recommendation. I'm going to this link. I'm putting in, you know, seekgeek.com slash David or promo code David and... 
I'm purchasing through through SeatGeek. That is the number that matters to you the most is purely how many people per influencer have bought the product. It's not about brand development. It's about sales. It's about sales. I mean, the brand is, is nice, but I think what you get when you have that mindset is you find people who get, we have this guy who breaks down Lakers film. And I don't know how many views he get. It gets, it could be 5,000, 10,000, maybe it's 20,000. But he drives so many purchasers because every single one of the, every wow. single person who's watching that video is an obsessed Lakers fan. And so because you have that conversion mm -hmm. mindset, he is very valuable to us. Whereas somebody who, let's say, is doing a million views and is only driving, you know, a quarter of as many purchasers, they're going to price it on that million views. But you're not getting that a million views worth of value. Whereas the other guy is going to price it on his 20,000 views. And so you're going to, there's this arbitrage right there where you're able to really hit your target audience much harder if you have that conversion lens. Interesting. Where does, uh, where does TikTok play in all of this? Because they're new. They're the cool kid on the block. And, and if you listen to the show, you could hear me and Saul at the end of every episode saying, we're going to have a TikTok strategy. We just don't know what our we TikTok strategy know. is. Right. We don't know what yeah. that is. And I was listening to these guys on uh, YouTube, Colin and Samir, and they always talk about social media and what the industry is like. And they just like, they took YouTube out. They really went after them and, and just said that they missed the mark. They missed the mark here. And, uh, you know, one of the things they said was people that consume YouTube don't go out and create. Most of them don't go out and create. Most of, I mean, there's a lot of creators, but most people don't. On TikTok, you're consuming, but you're also creating at a very high level. And so, I, I, yeah, I mean, where does TikTok play in this, in this world of, of Instagram, YouTube, Snap? How do they fit in? So, it's a great question. And I'm not going to pretend that I know the exact answer yet. That's fine. I would say... I'd say what's different about TikTok that I'm still grappling with is how algorithmically driven the app is. Whereas YouTube is much more focused, particularly on individual creators. Whereas the top, sure, the Charlie D'Amelio and the Addison Rays are big, big names. Yeah. And they're not going away. But that middle version of creators, it's tougher for people to make a name for themselves as a destination place. As a place when someone opens the app and says, I need to see what Ian from SeatGeek produced today. And so I think that's what, what makes me a little bit nervous from a direct response point of view of trying to find the people. And the second thing is, it's really fucking hard to get an ad in 15 seconds <laughs> that makes people want to yeah. leave the app and buy something and make the content interesting. Like try to do all those three things. <laughs> like for instance, when, when Instagram Stories launched, we went crazy. I think we sponsored a hundred Instagram stories in the first two months and uh -huh. it worked kind of like it's, but people went to events and they did a swipe up and you don't even have a swipe up on TikTok. but you did the swipe up, it takes you to the app store and it works. The problem was, is people now just click through that story so fast. No one's yep. swiping up and that really just didn't have staying power. And I think for TikTok. You don't even have the swipe up. And it's very tough to fit into 15 seconds. They want to take a piece, no? I mean, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, you know, you have the TikTok creator marketplace. What does that mean for you guys? What does that mean for agencies? Are agencies dead? And What do you mean you by want to take a piece? Are you saying that TikTok so and all these guys are trying to collect a piece of the market? They're revenue? basically trying to get rid of the middleman here and basically say, um, you know, if you're a brand, you want to work with an influencer, you just go through, just go through us. 
is kind of similar to what you saw back in the day with this company called Famebit, which Google bought, was it basically creators could list their price and brands could sponsor them. The problem is, mm-hmm. is the minute you start commoditizing humans, it becomes a race <laughs> to the bottom. And that's what it is. And no, David Dobrik does not want to be commoditized because he doesn't want to compete on a per view basis. It's true. Right. Because his view is so much more powerful than the average creator's view. So mm-hmm. there's always going to be this level of like, do I want to join a platform where it's just going to be a race to the bottom where it's, you know, well, Sally priced her view two cents lower than mine. So do I price mine lower? So I, I'm not quite, I don't quite know where it's going to go, but I know if I'm a creator, I'm hesitant to be commoditized to that platform if I'm already established. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing is like platforms like TikTok, Instagram stories, et cetera, while it may be easier to go viral on those apps, like I think one thing on TikTok is like in their for you algorithm, they don't even take into account whether or not you've gone viral in the past. So it's easy for new people to go viral, but it's hard to build that very deep connection between the content creator and the viewer, whereas you can make that connection on YouTube, which is why it's easier to sponsor and convert ads from YouTube, because there's more time for the influencer, for the creator in general to connect with their audience. Yeah. And I think, listen, if, if you're willing to hear somebody talk, literally hear them talk and their point of view on the world or how they see the world. That's a great indicator of influence. If you want to look at someone on Instagram because they're good looking or they have this amazing life, you don't have quite the same amount of, I'm going to trust what they say, whereas you're going Mm -hmm. to have on YouTube and podcasts. Just long form content gives gives you a different level of fandom than you're going to get on other platforms. Interesting. Interesting. One One of my last questions really is, Influencers can really, like creators can really do everything on their own. I mean, they can, they're running, they're running million dollar, multi-million dollar businesses on their own. Where can businesses that say, I want to, you know, I want to help creators, where can they, other than advertising, where can they come in and say, I want to support them? Like, are we just going to have tons of creators running their own little productions or is there some value to having like, you know, barstool sports coming in and going, you know. I'll I'll run your podcast. You handle the create creation. Is is that model not really valid because I could just do it all on my own? Where I think the conversation is shifting is less from help me get my content off the ground to more if I'm if I'm David Dobrik, who's going to help me start my direct to consumer companies? So like right. merch was the start, right? And so. Creators went from I'm making AdSense money to suddenly I'm making you know a million dollars in merch a month, hmm. and I think what creators saw really opened their eyes how much power their audience actually has. So you can do brand deals, but you can also launch your own brands. And so you're, the next thing was makeup, and Shane Dawson, who's one of the Shane Dawson and Jeffrey Star, Shane Dawson made thirty million dollars one day selling makeup. He crashed Shopify. $30 million in a day. One day. Yeah. Oh, one day. Crashed the whole site. So I think what you're seeing is these creators are opening their eyes to launching their own brands, consumer brands, and launching software. And if you're a company that can support that, who can give them the infrastructure to do that, you're going to be in an incredibly powerful position. Wow. Love it. 
Love it. So that's interesting. So it's not as much about helping them create or produce content. It's about helping them monetize their audiences either through, you know, new products or, you know, through support in the ad negotiation process, let's say, maybe even, um, but just in general, helping them more on the business side. They don't need the support you're saying on the creative side. That's their department. I think what we've seen is that creators at a certain point, and maybe not with the early creators, they're really good at creating. It's kind of how I learned. You got to guys got to stay out of their way. But mm-hmm. what they're lear- but what they don't understand quite yet and they're just starting to understand is how much power their millions of their their David Dobrik's 10 million dollar 10 10 million person audience is. I mean they're effectively one man media networks. Correct. So that's that that's your whole thing is like these guys are basically owning every they are they are the show. They are the Network, they are the production, they are everything. I mean, NBC is just a waste of time now. <laughs> and now they're e-commerce brands. And now they're e-commerce brands. Huh. It's just, it's wild. It's wild. Ian, we ask all our guests this question at the end of every interview, and that is, is entrepreneurship born or made? And you cannot say both. Made. Why? Okay. <laughs> well, I'll put it this way. I think uh, just speaking for myself, I never, I never grew up considering myself being an entrepreneur, which wasn't me. I was always just the guy who wants to get the decent grades, get to the next step in my life and keep it moving. And I think through this entire experience over the last few, four years, I really like you have a moment that you can actually create things and you can do things. And so I, I have this sense of confidence that I would have never had five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. And I now have the confidence where I think I would be willing to start my own business or I would be willing to really put myself out there because I know in my gut that I can get it done because I feel like I've built something at SeatGeek and I think I can take that next step and really build something for myself if I wanted to. Very well said. And, 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 and we'll leave it at that, that little mystery right there, that ending. But um, we'll leave it at that. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I had a lot of fun. Hell yeah. That was Ian from SeatGeek, Ian Borthwick. What an interview. He is... What an interview. It, it's not even a discussion. And like I said in the, in the beginning of the episode, he is the biggest name in influencer marketing right now. And by the way, if you want to learn more about influencer marketing, you should definitely go follow his Twitter. There is something about his tweets. I like every single one of his tweets. It's not because I'm the biggest fan of Ian. It's literally because there's just the way he writes his tweets are so engaging. I, I, I yeah, or engaging and, and gives you that like, oh yeah, moment. Like, wow, what a, what a line or what a fact, <laughs> or the way he broke that down was just so perfect. Yeah. I could talk about his tweets for hours, but um, <laughs> just that oh yeah moment. So you yeah. guys, if you're looking for that oh yeah moment from your tweets, uh, follow Ian Borthwick at Ian from CK, at Ian Seekeek. Or is it at Ian Borthwick? I don't know. I think it's, I think it's at Ian Borthwick, actually. Whatever. Um, G- look up on the search bar of YouTube, yeah. I mean, of Twitter, <laughs> Ian from Seekeek, and you will get him. We got a great one next week. Um, we're going to keep that top secret. We got another great one next week, but uh, we're excited. Thank you guys for watching, listening. Thank you guys. Anywhere you are, you know, follow us on Instagram at Casual Poor Pod, on Twitter at Casual Poor, on our unreleased uh, TikTok account that we will release one day at Casual Poor. Follow, share, comment, 
Email us. Subscribe. All of it. All of it. All of it. Also, thank you to Daniel Lerner for our theme music. Thank you to Evan Parnes for our graphic design and art. We want to get we the show. See. We want to get the show to a million plays an episode, and that only happens if you guys share the episode and spread the word. Um, you know, it's our fans first, and we know that, and we appreciate it. Um, all the love, you know. <laughs> uh oh, all, all, the, all love. the love, all the love, all, all the love, love, and we'll see you guys next week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>